Welcome uh, in building and online. Obviously, uh, I'm not Daniel. He's in uh, Ohio or Egypt or somewhere back there in the Midwest with a birthday party. He called up. You know, it's, it's a pitiful thing when the lead pastor is begging. Dad, please, if you'll just preach, I can go to this party. So here I am. Hopefully he didn't regret what he did. So today we're going to look at... <laughs> You can tease him about it, though. Say, don't ever let that guy speak again. <laughs> you guys, don't raise your hand because it will reveal a demographic we don't want to necessarily point out. Have you ever written a letter? <laughs> of what? <laughs> Snail mail. When we first moved up here in 76, um, that was the only way to communicate with our parents. So we had a weekly back-and-forth letter. And they were so encouraging. We were up here and uh, began a church at Redstone. Letters meant so much to us. I bet even now, if you were to get a letter in your mailbox from a friend, handwritten, that you would appreciate it. You'd read the whole thing. Which brings me to a question. If you were asked to write a letter to the Christians in Afghanistan, not many of them probably, and, and they're very secretive, they can't be open about it. They probably have a basic understanding about Jesus, death on the cross, forgiveness of sin, his resurrection, maybe a few other things, but maybe they don't have like the whole, what well, we have the Bible. And so if you were to write a letter to them to uh, instruct them and encourage them about how to live in a hostile society, what would you say? What would you instruct them about? Well, let's turn it around. Let's say that an Afghani Christian person in all that persecution had become quite strong in his or her faith. And uh, they had uh, written a letter to American Christians to encourage American Christians. Now, they're living under intense persecution. But he also knows that American Christians are facing difficulty. That Christian and moral values are being disregarded and under attack. And Christians are seen as judgmental bigots. And non-Christians flaunt and promote lifestyles that are contrary to Christian beliefs. So he knows that Christians in America also live in a hostile society. He understands that sometime before, uh, biblical values were pretty well adopted by everyone, especially back in the mid-century. But then the 60s happened. Do you remember the 60s? They say if you remember them, you probably weren't there. The 60s came along and turned things upside down. Drugs and sex and wild, crazy music and parties and government regulations and agencies have kind of deconstructed and crumbled what was a Christian uh, environment, let's say. And he knows that Christians need to be instructed how to live in a hostile environment where Christians are now ridiculed, canceled. So if there were a letter to the Afghani Christians or American Christians on how to live in a hostile society, wouldn't it be great to have written specifically to our situation, I got good news for you. 
there are a bunch of letters written to Christians who live in a hostile culture under a terrible government where they were persecuted, they were arrested, tortured, their things were taken away from them. And so there were letters written on how to be a Christian in a society that's hostile to Christianity. Isn't that good news? Can you believe it? I mean, look, the back part of your Bible, we've got these letters that were written by followers of Jesus. You see, when Jesus rose and, and uh, had been with his disciples a while, then he ascended to heaven, he gave them a commission. Now, here's what he said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so when Jesus was resurrected, there were probably just a couple of dozen Christians. But now 40 days later, there could be up to 100. He is commissioning them to go and take the message called the gospel. And, and they were to take that message throughout the Roman Empire, and they began to spread it. Soon there were thousands of Christians. The trade routes carried the message, cities, rural areas. People began to believe in Jesus and become Jesus' followers. Now remember, they lived in a culture completely different than one we would call Christian. They lived in a culture that uh, thought of the gods, the gods, small g, quotes, as capricious somewhere in the sky on Mount Olympus just years or months before. They've been pagans. They believed in all those uh, funny gods, you know, Zeus and Jupiter and those guys. And they lived in a society that uh, life was very meaningless and uh, poverty was everywhere. There was disease, were rampant. The government might come in and arrest you for no reason at all, torture you, throw you to the lions. And so that's the kind of society they lived in. The Roman population we would probably say was very immoral. Even their worship in the temples that uh, were usually in every major town, there were uh, uh, cult prostitutes where men would go and do their uh, worship. Other than that, there wasn't a whole lot expected of the followers of the Greek and Roman gods. Just to sort of uh, don't get their attention. Uh, live your life, take care of yourself, protect what you've got, Get what you can from other people um, and watch out. So it was a society, a culture of immorality, of sexual perversion. And the, the letters had to spell out how these Christians could live. Amazingly, the Christians in that society, in that culture, began to live lives flowing from their faith in Jesus. Lives that were characterized by joy and peace and love do you think that stood out in that Roman culture you bet it did how could they live with peace and joy when they were being so mistreated and in the midst of such a moral cesspool these writers wanted to convey to them how to follow up because all they had were just some fragments of what Jesus teachings were uh, you may have heard these uh, in, a, in an early Christian church in the Roman Empire, people may come together in a home 
And there these Christians would meet. And someone would come in and, and they would say, I've got, I've got a, a part of a letter. Or I've got part of what Jesus said. And everybody would like, oh, wow, that's great. Only one person could read the one that brought it. The others would listen intently. And they would memorize what, they were, what was being heard. And so one of them was Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus teaching. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. Now, if that's all you had, love God and love people, how would you live differently in a, in a society that was contrary to that? And then Matthew 5, 44, I tell you, love your enemies. What? Love your enemies and pray for them. I can tell you that the typical Roman uh, population, certainly not the shoulders, the sho soldiers would not live in that, in that regard. And then John 13, Jesus said, love one another. As I have loved you. How did Jesus love his followers? He served them. He laid his life down for them. You must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And so these letters that we have here were written primarily by, by four people. Uh, by Paul and uh, Peter and James and John. Sounds like a folk group, doesn't it? Peter and Paul and James and John. But they wrote these letters at different times, different circumstances to different people. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote the first one about 20 years after Jesus had resurrected. And he was the uh, leader of the Jerusalem church at the time. And when he wrote, listen, when he wrote this letter, it wasn't that there could be problems someday. They'd already stoned Stephen to death. One of the followers of Jesus had been stoned. The church, the Christians were scattered by the authorities, get out of town or die. And then James, the brother of John, had been beheaded. And James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, writes this letter. And he's writing it to those Christians that were scattered by that persecution. Please hear this letter as if you were one of those early Christians. And persecution and difficulties were all about. And you're getting this letter. This, this precious letter is coming to you on how to live in this society as a Christian. Different than what you were like two months or, or years ago. How do you live as a follower of Jesus? Let's flesh this out. So James wrote, and this is the way he began his letter. James 1, 2, 3, 4. Greetings. Consider it per joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Is that what you want to get in your mailbox if things are going bad, if it's tough, if you're being persecuted? Why, I thought he would tell us how to get out of problems, but he's saying when you're in problems, consider it joy. Because you know testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so you can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You see, what they were doing was developing the character and the strength and the resolve of these early Christians. Because before they had lived only for themselves, taken advantage of other people, griped and complained or tried to get out of difficulties, and now he's saying, when you're in them, count it joy. Because it's going to build you up. It's going to make you strong. Later on in that same chapter, verse 27, he says religion, and he means Christianity here, 
that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the, by the world. If you were an orphan or a widow in the first century of the Roman Empire, you pretty well had a, uh, a death script in front of you. Uh, if your husband died, uh, there probably was no way that you were going to be able to subsist. And you would die slowly in poverty, starvation. The child probably would be left alone. In fact, in those early days, um, what they called exposure was practice. If Roman parents had a baby, and that baby was not ideal in every way, especially if it were a female baby, they could expo expose it. That's what it was called. They could take it out and put it by the road or in the forest for it to die alone of the elements, starvation, or wild animals. That's how the babies were treated. And when the Christians received this information, Christians not only began to take care of orphans and widows, they began going out and looking for these infants that were left to die and even though these Christian families might have had limited resources to feed their own family, they would bring that baby into their household and raise it in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus. You see, these instructions are startlingly counter to the culture that they lived in because the Roman population didn't care much at all for those who were disadvantaged. Oh, and here's one. This is so cool. Remember Jesus said, love one another? So now we've got this uh, church gathering in this home, and he says here in James 2, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Remember, there's room for everyone here, no asterisks. Well, apparently the early church hadn't quite got that memo yet. And so it says, Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and then a poor man comes in. The general Roman population would bow and curtsy before a rich man because he could be of an advantage to them. A poor guy, ha, huh, out of the way. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and you say, well, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand, sit on the floor. Then what you've done, you've discriminated among yourselves and you become judgmental. Judgmental because you are relating to someone who could be of an advantage to you, and that's not love, which is unconditional. So the early church, uh, these people, like I said, they were just a few years out of paganism. They were used to treating people who were rich better, and James is saying, no, you treat them the same. This was so different than the Roman culture where those who were rich were exalted and those who were poor were marginalized. He said, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you're doing right. Oh, here's, here's some good ones. Uh, what good is it, James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds to back it up? Can such a faith save them? Now, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, well-fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. Do we need to hear that in our day and time? Is there an even believism so that we say we're Christians and yet we do not treat each other with that same consideration, generosity, and care? Remember, these folks, they didn't mind at all before they became Christians to say to someone, hey, go away. I don't want to help you. And now James is saying, <clears throat> you feed them. Take care of them. And then here we go, James 4, 1. He's writing this to a bunch of Christians in a local church. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Did you hear that? People in the church are fighting and quarreling? No way. Well, they didn't know any better. I mean, they're, they're just a, you know, a short time from paganism. And so they think if you have somebody with a different view, you just lay it on them. You have an argument. You fight. You contend. You get your way. You get what you want. He says, don't you know that these quarrels come from your desires that battle within? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. Did you hear that? He's writing this to church people. And he had heard through the grapevine that some church somewhere in the Roman Empire, there was a gathering of Christians. Some guy didn't have what he wanted and somebody else did, so he killed him and took it. In the church! It was no, it was no picnic for these guys in the early church because they didn't know any other way to live. He said, what you do, you covet. In other words, you want what somebody else has got, but you can't get it, so you quarrel and fight. You want things your way. You want there to be a particular opinion about society or politics in your church. And if somebody in your church is different than that, you quarrel and fight. to Get your way. Get them lined up. To convince them. To correct them. To criticize them. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Has there ever been a society on the planet more than ours where people buy to fulfill their pleasure? You think this letter is relevant? It was written almost 2,000 years ago. It sounds like it's fresh off the press, doesn't it? Handwritten letter for these churches. Now, Paul, who was a Pharisee, persecuted the church, became a Christian. He's, he began to be one of these letter writers, and he wrote one to a church at Colossae. Now, if you have a study Bible, you can see about these towns he wrote these letters to. I would encourage each of you to have a place in your home every morning. You get up with your coffee, your tea, you have a study Bible, and you read a passage. You look down here, it explains it, and says in these towns, there were temples to the gods. Remember I told you, these gods... Uh, we're not kindly characters. And these temples, you could go to the temple of Zeus or Diana was in Ephesus. And uh, you went there and uh, with all your friends. And you didn't really like these gods, but you felt like you had to because if you didn't worship them in the right way, you wouldn't prosper. Or something bad might happen to you or your community. So Paul is writing to people who only knew about gods who were in a bad mood all the time and didn't like people. Listen to what he has to say here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Please don't zone out. I'm not going to explain this. 
oftentimes in sermons, when the pastor reads the scripture, we're like, well, we zone out because he's going to explain it. I want you to hear this as if it were fresh to you, and you were just coming off the street having watched people go to the temple to worship Zeus. And now you're in your home church, and you're hearing this letter from Paul, and this is what he says. This is startling. Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Wait, I thought he was born in Bethlehem. No. He's been around since before the beginning. In him, all things were created. They had never heard before that God was the creator. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Are you getting an understanding here, the status that he's giving Jesus that's so different than the other gods. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. If you look at the universe, and you think about the kind of being it would take to create a universe as magnificent and precise as the one we live in, and that invisible God that we can't see poured himself into a man, Jesus, so that Jesus was fully God and fully man. The fullness of God rested in him. That is startling. That's scandalous. But that's what they were hearing when they came to the church gathering, much different than the temples. He reminded them what Jesus had done in dying for their sins and forgiving them. And, and then he prays for them. Uh, Colossians 1, 11 and 12, he prays they'll be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Now, in our culture, we're a materialistic culture. We pray we'll be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that we may have all things the way we want them and have all the stuff that we want. But no, he prays they'll have all this godly power so they can have endurance and patience. Why do they need it? Because they live in a culture hostile to them, and they never know when a knock may come on the door, and then they drug out into the street. There are things taken from them and be arrested. He's praying you have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father. How can you be joyful? Because he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Now, this Christianity has spread, the belief in Jesus, the, the followers, and these letters have built them up and made them strong. So when Paul and Silas went to this uh, Grecian town of Thessalonica, this is what happened. A mob was gathered by those who opposed what Paul and Silas were preaching about Jesus. And it says here, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. That's where Paul and Silas were staying. Can you imagine in Carbondale or Glenwood or Basalt that uh, someone didn't like what was being preached at a church so much? They got a mob together, and they went to where they thought they were staying to drag them out. It says when they couldn't find them, they drug out Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Listen, this is funny. They were crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too to our little town. 
I think Christianity was making a mark on this society. It turned it upside down. He says, uh, Jason harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king. <gasps> Jesus. If you didn't put a little pinch of incense on the coals every year to the Caesar, to the, to the emperor, you were considered a person who was in danger of losing your life and everything. But they considered Jesus the king. Now, remember I told you about Paul. He became a Christian. He had some uh, pastors he was mentoring. One guy is named Timothy, and he's in Ephesus. So he's in this uh, maybe a few years after the church was established, and Timothy's pastoring them uh, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. These are Paul's instructions to Timothy about how to lead his church. I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority. Can you imagine sitting in church and you hate the emperor and the governor? I mean, we're always complaining about it. I mean, what's he doing? And Paul says to pray for them with thanksgiving. Are you kidding? It was so common among the Roman population just to complain and blame and gripe. Paul says pray for them so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. So, in other words, by not uh, complaining and blaming and griping, but by praying for the government leaders, we could live a peaceful life and people come to the saving knowledge of God. It's interesting to note, Jesus and none of the letter writers ever criticized the most evil government that's ever occupied the planet. What they did was they taught believers, Christians, how to live in a terrible situation. They didn't try to change the system, tell those Christians how to live in the situation. In fact, Paul wrote to the Philippians, uh, and you can imagine this in an age of social media, which it wasn't, but it is now. He says, do all things without complaining and arguing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do people on social media complain and blame and criticize and judge? Do people where you work at coffee breaks, do you ever hear people complaining about the government, the way things are, this president, that president? Well, guess what? Paul says, do all things without complaining and griping so that you may be those who stand out like the stars and shine in a perverse and crooked generation. See, everybody else, how much effort does it take to complain or blame about something? How, how much brains does it take? How hard is it to live under a difficult situation, not blame, not complain, not criticize, not gripe, but to live a pleasant life of love and joy and peace. That's the challenge. That's the difficulty he is calling them to here.
So uh, Peter wrote to him about uh, 37 years after Jesus' resurrection. And he wanted them to know how to live lives in a difficult and terrible... Let me see which ones we're going we're gonna, to... Oh, let's do Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, Gabriel. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors. This is Peter. This is different. Peter was in Rome when he wrote this. He was going to die by crucifixion within the year. Uh, Who are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. It's God's will. By doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Have you ever observed online, social media, or your community, ignorant talk of foolish people. He says you silence it by the winsomeness of your life. By your life. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, First Peter 4, 12 and 13, Gabriel. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come to you to test you as though something strange was happening. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. How to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Is that what you want to hear? Or do you want to hear how to avoid them? Or get out of them? Well, I had an unusual experience the last month. My, my lower back went out. Uh, and when it went out at first, I missed. Well, I was supposed to speak that Sunday. But I, I called Daniel on Saturday morning and said, I can't even stand up. I had to use Rebecca's walker from her knee replacement to get around. And so I went to the doctor, went to the chiropractor, the physical therapist, and it got a little better, but it never got all better. So Friday I went back to the doctor, different one. He said, well, let me see it. I told him about the, the symptom. He said, let's do an x-ray. So they did an x-ray. So the, he brought the x-ray up on the computer screen. He looked at it. He said, hmm. Well, we have some uh, degenerative disease. He called me a degenerate. I mean, I'm a pastor. <laughs> we have got some osteoporosis, I mean, osteorheumatism. No. What am I trying to say? Yeah, whatever. Uh, it, it's when, you know, it's when uh, somehow the, the gaps that were there or the joints begin to wear down. And he said, you know, your spine served you well, but... Uh, you've got some, uh, the situation here is that you're going to have to learn how to live with pain. Excuse me? I came here to find out. I came here for you to eliminate the pain. He said, you may have to live with some discomfort and limitation. I said, I'm paying you for this? He had the nerve. To begin to show me, he said, this is how you lift. You, you, I can't do it. But you get down, you lift up with your back, and you do this and you do that. And he told me how to live with pain and suffering. I didn't want to hear that. But that's what these letter writers said to those Christians who lived in a society that they could not change the symptom. How to live with suffering in a graceful way. And they did it so well. This is so cool. This is an ancient letter that we have written by one of the governors of a province in what's now Turkey. His name is Pliny the Younger. 
I don't know if that's a compliment or not. Plenty the younger. His uh, relative Trajan was the emperor at the time. And Trajan sent him a letter and said, this is a royal decree. I want you to start arresting Christians, round them up, uh, imprison them, torture them, do whatever you want. We've got to get rid of them. And so Pliny uh, wrote this back to Trajan. The sum and substance, oh, I'm sorry, let me say, uh, Pliny rounded up some Christians in his region and interrogated them. And then after he did, he said, well, that's strange. I don't hear any major crime here that needs to be punished. He said the sum and substance of their fault has been they were accustomed to meet on the first day of the week before dawn. Now, that was Sunday morning. There was no days off. They met before dawn on Sunday, and they sing responsively a hymn to Christ, their God. Responsively means if, if the leader says, uh, praise God, whom all blessings flow, everybody just repeats that. And then they bind themselves by an oath not to commit crimes, not to commit uh, fraud, theft, or adultery. This is it. This is what those wretches are doing. When they're meeting on this day before dawn, they sing to their God and commit themselves, bind themselves not to commit crimes, to be faithful and loyal, and kind. Why are, we, why are we killing these people? And so he goes ahead, I therefore postponed the investigation and I hasted to consult you, especially because of the number involved. Did you get that? He's got so many Christians, he's thinking, we don't have jails big enough for these guys. For many persons of every rank and age, also of both sexes, will be endangered. For the contagion of their superstition. Now, that's a code word for resurrection. For resurrection. Has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and to the, uh, to the farms. So he, Pliny, is, he's thinking, if I've got to arrest these folks, I've got to get a bigger army. And I'm not going to go arrest the best citizens in my region. These are some of the best people we got. I'm not arresting them. An author who wrote about uh, the first three centuries of the church's existence in Rome recently wrote about the tremendous societal change that came with Christianity. Started with a few dozen, slowly grew. They figure about 40% a year in number. Until by the year 300, 10% of the Roman population were Christians. Would you like to get 40% back on your IRA? That'd be pretty good. Well, that, that so many people were believing in Jesus and becoming his followers and reading these letters that it began to change the way the government governed. It began to change the way people lived. It began to put women in an exalted position, began to save the lives of children and others. Uh, it, it changed society. Here's a quote. He said, no one can deny that this was the most monumental cultural uh, transformation our world has ever seen. Who would have thought? The book is called Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World. How do you explain it? The power of Jesus the power of his words and teachings and instructions through the power of the Holy Spirit and the instructions of these letters permeated 
through one of the most evil and repressive governments the world has ever seen. You see, I told you a moment ago about uh, rescuing infants. Uh, the Christians did it so much that it began to influence the way people lived. They, they didn't expose their infants as much. In fact, when Constantine came along 300 years later, he outlawed exposing your infant. I mean, here was a Christian value that was brought into and made a law, and uh, uh, Valentinian, later on, the next emperor, made it a capital offense. You put your kid out, we're killing you. <laughs> That's the way it, it, it changed because of the behavior and winsomeness of the lives of Christians. Christians would say in a, in a in a town or a village where a plague was. Take care of the people there while everybody else, they're getting out of Dodge. Some of them died. But their care and their love for others began to mark them. Christian values and lifestyles changed the empire. Now, I've got to tell you, it wasn't because the Christians carried signs and protested. It wasn't because they posted uh, on social media Criticism of people who believe differently than them. It wasn't because they used force, intimidation, criticism, or judgmentalism. If you take away those things, what have we got? We have the winsomeness of a Christian lifestyle of love and care that stands out in a dark and perverse generation like Paul had said. We are called to love one another as Christ loved us, to love our enemies, to love God, and love people. How hard is that to love Christians? You know Christians are hard to love. And you're thinking, well, you know, I, I love these guys, but you don't, you don't know. Uh, the people that you do know, people you live with, you have arguments probably every once in a while, and they seem like, and you try to get your way in force. I tell you, if you've got to know people in here, fellow Christians, you would discover they have beliefs different than yours and lifestyles and behaviors that you just need to correct them about. And you would fight them unless you follow Jesus' love one another. It's hard work to love one another. It's hard work to love Christians. Love your enemies. Who are your enemies? They may not know it, because you haven't told them. But people who have a different lifestyle or live different moral values than you, I mean, it just kind of enrages you, doesn't it? The way they're getting away with this, uh, what do they call it? Um, the uh, pronoun changes, where you have, if someone wants to be called by a different pronoun, different gender, uh, I mean, how do you deal with this kind of stuff? How do you love your enemies? Jesus said that we are to love them. Love those who are different than you. Love people with different lifestyles, even if they're contrary to your moral values. They are human beings, and this is what changed everything. Before Jesus, people were not seen as precious or individuals. After Jesus, people are made in the image of God. And they're all precious. And Jesus died for them. And they need to know that. They need to experience a Christian who is loving, not judgmental. 
They need to experience a Christian who is gracious and who is kind. You see those people who are non-Christians, who are living lifestyles that you do not approve of? They're probably doing the best they can with what they have or what they've experienced. Did you hear that? They're not to be judged. They're to be loved. And they really need to experience a Christian who is loving and not judgmental. You know, back in, in the, those early years, uh, almost every day, wherever you lived, there were burials because people were dying left and right. There were diseases, there were accidents, there was oppression, there was executions, and you would see somebody laid in the ground. It was every day. You saw it. And then one day you're walking on a road by a river, and you see someone, there's some people out there, and they're standing around one person. And they've got this one person standing up. You don't hear what they're saying, but well, in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and they put this person under the water, and you're thinking, well, they're killing them. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a burial that's going to end up bad. And then of all things, they raise the person up. You see, Christian baptism tells the story with almost out of word that we are new creations in Christ and communion. The Christians would gather, and they would take the bread that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And they would take the cup. Jesus said, this is my blood shed for you. And they would take it in remembrance of Jesus, the Son of God. So as you take communion in a moment, you're doing something that began over 2,000 years ago and that Christians did in the uh, middle of a persecuting and hostile environment. Let me, let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for instructions and the strength and the wisdom of how to live in difficult situations in a tough environment. Father, forgive us and deliver us from being complainers and whiners and arguers. And let us be people who are characterized by our love and our grace. That people may see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father in heaven. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.